You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. If you were not with us last week, you almost missed the end of Ephesians because uh, we, we covered a ton of uh, verses uh, last week. Um, so we were in about halfway through chapter 5 at the beginning of last week, and now we are halfway through chapter 6 today. Um, the reason for that, as I shared last week, is I felt like it was important for us to see those passages all under the same umbrella of what it looks like to submit and to serve each other. So instead of trying to break it up and spending a week looking at husbands and wives, spending a week looking at parents and children, and then another week looking at uh, masters and servants, I really wanted us to see it all collectively together, that there's this bigger idea that Paul's trying to convey to us, and that's what he led off that section with in chapter 5, where he tells us in verse 21 that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so it's this idea of laying aside our needs and our preferences and our desires with a desire and willingness to serve those around us, whether that's in the context of marriage, whether that's in the context of parenthood, um, and whether that's in the context of the places that we work, that we would instead, uh, versus pushing our own agenda or Uh, putting our own needs above the needs of others, that we instead would come at it from an attitude of humility, where we would serve others and uh, take care of others. And uh, when we're in positions where we need to lead, that we would lead well, uh, leading with a perspective of how would God handle these type of situations. And so we saw that in each of those categories, that uh, the husband and wife are to model the gospel and what it looks like for Christ in the church to love and, and serve one another. Uh, we're to, to bring up our children in an attitude and mindset of not just uh, what's best for our home, but how do you fit into the, the bigger kingdom uh, of the gospel? And so how do we raise our kids to not just obey us, but to obey the Lord? Uh, and we do so without provoking them to anger. Uh, and then we looked at what it looks like to work well and to uh, have people underneath us that work for us and how to do that well too, um, and how we're to uh, model uh, the, the impartiality that God has in those situations. And so uh, that's where we looked at last week, just a lot of verses, a lot of ideas about what it looks like to submit and serve one another. Uh, we, we said that um, the quantifier in all of those situations is we don't, uh, we don't submit uh, in ways that would lead us into sin. Uh, and then we also talked about how there's abusive situations in all three of those categories, abusive husbands, uh, abusive parents, abusive bosses, Um, And that because those abuses exist, it doesn't necessarily mean that we throw everything out here, right? That these principles and these truths are absolutely continually uh, relevant to us, even though abuses happen. And so um, we kind of talked about that some last week as well. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and and listen to some of that from our podcast last week so that you can fill in some of the gaps maybe uh, from what you're missing uh, in that quick review. We jump into uh, this last section of Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 10, uh, talking about the armor of God. And I told you last week we're going to do the same thing. We're going to cover the entire section today. I don't want to piece it out and try to focus on each individual piece of armor. I want us to see it collectively, what it looks like to arm ourselves well for the, the battles that, that rage around us. Um, and so we're going to look at that today. What is it? What does it mean to have um, spiritual warfare and, and to be aware of spiritual warfare? And I think it's uh, appropriate that we're able to look at this today on a day where, uh, you know, many of us will, will choose different ways to celebrate Halloween. Um, but it's certainly a day 
where, where many choose to delve into the dark realm, uh, darkness that oftentimes is, is shown at this time of year almost to be a type of thing that can't be overcome, right? That the darkness is so great that it can't be overcome. And uh, thanks be to God, we see in this passage today that it can, that it already has been. I mean, that we've been put in a position of victory and we're to stand firm in that victory. And so we'll see that as we unpack uh, this section today. So I want to read for us our text, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Our summary sentence for today, our church must be mindful of the battle against us as we seek to carry out the orders of this letter by being intentional to arm ourselves with the resources we need while praying for the effectiveness of those resources as well. Our church must be mindful of the battle against us as we seek to carry out the orders of this letter by being intentional to arm ourselves with the resources we need while praying for the effectiveness of those resources as well. For our kids, our church needs God's power if we are to obey the letter of Ephesians. Um, most of the time, this passage is taught uh, kind of exclusively, like out, outside the, the context in the realm of the whole book of Ephesians. It's a great passage to go to. You could certainly teach this as a section of Scripture, whether you're teaching through the whole book of Ephesians or not. So many pastors and teachers have, have really honed in on this passage as a way to understand spiritual warfare and to equip and empower uh, people to uh, live effectively in the midst of spiritual warfare. But I think it's important for us to see that this is not some afterthought that Paul throws in here at the end of Ephesians. Uh, he says, finally, I've really gotten to this last piece that I really want to share with you before I close out this letter, right? He's been really building to this point, building to this point of helping his people, helping the church see that they are in the midst of a battle. Now, whether we live 2,000 years ago when this uh, church was in existence or whether we live today, the content remains relevant. And you might could say it remains even more relevant for us today. As we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, we are told throughout Scripture that things will continually get worse leading up to that day, right? And so if there was spiritual warfare happening at that time, if Satan was active with his forces at that time, how much more is he active today, right? How much more is he active today, and how much more do we need to be on guard for his activity, Again, I said the context needs to be understood in light of what he's already said in the book of Ephesians. So if we just pause for a minute and think about what are the threats 
that, that Paul is thinking about in regards to what he's already said and this spiritual warfare that he's acknowledging exists around this church? What are the threats potentially that these rulers and authorities would be working against? What are the schemes of the devil going to be targeting? Well, if we think about the context of Ephesians, I think the primary threat that Paul is mindful of here is the ability for us as the church to live out both our identity and our unity as the church, right? We've talked about both of those concepts throughout our study in Ephesians. Who we are as, as Christians in Christ, we've talked about that individual aspect, who we are as Christians in Christ, but then who we are as Christians as part of the body of Christ too, right? So we've talked about individual responsibilities that we have to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to be truthful, to put away uh, sexual immorality, to, to remove any unwholesome talk, to uh, not allow anger to fester in our life, to pursue reconciliation. We've talked about these individual responsibilities, but then we've also talked a lot about the, the corporate responsibilities that we have as a church, to unite together from all walks of life, from all different backgrounds, that we are one in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. So Paul's talked a bunch about who we are in Christ as individuals, who we are in Christ as the church. I believe that that's what he sees as a major threat that Satan's going to go after. He wants to attack us in our understandings of our identity as individuals and within the church. And so he wants to attack identity and unity. And so I think it's important for us to see both of those concepts here. Uh, that what we talk about in regards to spiritual warfare and how we arm ourselves to prepare for that warfare is in the context of us understanding, protecting, and living out our identity and our unity. Um, The idea here in this section is that we need both God's armor and God's power if we are to experience the victory that really has already been won on our behalf, right? I think it would be a mistake to think that we are in a battle where we are trying to achieve victory. The victory's already been won, right? If we back up to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start reading in, um, we'll start reading in verse 18. Remember, Paul has been praying, and he says, I'm praying that you would have your eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right, the victory's already been won. Satan's already been defeated. He's already been disarmed at the cross with Jesus dying and then coming back to life three days later. The victory has been won. So we don't battle in a sense that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians with a desire for victory. We are in a midst of a battle to understand our victory, right? To understand the victory that's already been won on our behalf. Now, Again, we've, we've probably all uh, heard messages and passage, or messages preached on this passage, uh, but Paul certainly is uh, writing from a standpoint where he had heard messages preached as well, uh, from Old Testament passages that carry a lot of the same imagery that we read about here. And I want to read some of those to you in Isaiah chapter 11. So Paul isn't coming up with something brand new here, this concept of spiritual warfare and the armor needed 
to uh, endure it. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a prophecy about... um, Christ coming as the Messiah, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Right? These ideas of virtues being attached to uh, types of armor, right? Now, the reason we're not going to really differentiate and really spend a lot of time talking about each piece of armor is that you can read passages like this where sometimes types of armor are attributed to a different virtue than we read here in Ephesians. So I don't think that the armor specifically has to be tied to the virtue in all cases. The idea here is that these virtues need to be a part of our life. They need to be understood and they need to be lived out in our life. So it's righteousness, it's faithfulness, it's truth, uh, aspects of the gospel that need to be understood. And so this is one section in the Old Testament that Paul may have had in mind as he was reflecting about what the church in Ephesians needed. If you fast forward to uh, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 15, it says, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. This aspect of of the armor uh, that that God wears and and it, resembles the armor that we're told to put on here in the New Testament. If you go to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Besides this, you know that the time, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Right, The fruits of light that we at here in Ephesians already. These virtues that should be a part of who we are. We should be known for these type of things. The last one I'll read to you is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So these are passages that we read about where armor is being talked about and these virtues that are supposed to be a part of our life are highlighted. These are probably sections of scripture that Paul had in mind as he wrote this portion of Ephesians. These virtues have already been expressed in the book of Ephesians too, right? We've talked about these concepts of truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, peace, the word of God. These are things that he's already expounded upon. And so as he wraps up this letter, he's basically saying, hey, let's talk about the things that we've already talked about and how you need to equip yourself with these things. This section is also full of imperatives, uh, commands that we are expected to follow. And I'll highlight 
uh, three of them for you as kind of a way of understanding some of the others that are attached here as well. We're told to be strong, specifically in verse 10, to find our strength uh, in the Lord. And so we're going to talk about what it means to, to get our power from God to do the things that are being talked about here. We're also told to put on the armor, which means we have a responsibility to, to seize some of these things and to put these things into our life. We're told to stand firm as we do so. And then we'll wrap up this whole section by looking at what it looks like to pray, to pray for the effectiveness of these things in our life as well. All right, so let's jump in uh, with our notes today. Number one, uh, it starts with us being mindful of the battle that we are in. Be mindful of the battle. We're told that strength is going to be needed. We're told that armor is going to be needed, that we're going to have to stand firm because verse 12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're also, as we unpacking this, seeing that, that the devil is at work uh, as we see that his, his flaming darts are thrown at us. They're shot at us with the, with the goal of wounding us and destroying us. So, uh, we'll talk in a minute about what that looks like as well. All right, but we need to start by being mindful of the battle. Number one, we are engaged in a battle that extends beyond the physical and into the spiritual. We are engaged in a battle that extends beyond the physical and into the spiritual. Now, the devil or Satan has been referenced already twice in the book of Ephesians. Can anybody remember either one of those references? There's two references already to the enemy that we're about to talk about here in the midst of this warfare. Anybody remember one of those two references? Yep, so we talked about him in chapter 2 when we talked about our old way of life, that we were once subjected to the things of this world who were under, uh, the things of this world are under his sway. Right? So we talked about how uh, we have been rescued from that darkness. And so Paul talks about the world being under the sway of the devil. And then we also talked about him in um, chapter 4, verse 7, where we're told to not give him opportunity by hanging on to our anger, right? That we're supposed to deal with our anger because by doing so, we, we keep him from having an opportunity to seize that anger in our life and, and grow bitterness and resentment towards other people, okay? So we've already kind of seen uh, how he works both in the, the context of the bigger world and then even how he can work and move in the lives of believers and how we're to protect ourselves from that. Um, secondly, the physical battles are simply a reflection of the spiritual workings behind the scenes. And so I kind of highlight here, we're engaged in a battle that extends beyond the physical and into the spiritual because it's not just a spiritual battle. There's certainly a physical battle that we wage war against as well. We see the spiritual battle manifesting itself in, in physical ways, right? So uh, we, certainly, um, we certainly know and, and understand what it means to, to go through trials and difficulties and challenges. And then brothers and sisters in Christ around the world understand that even more in regards to the persecutions that they endure regularly, right? So there's certainly a physical element to the battle that rages, but the physical manifestation of it is really just a picture of something that's working behind the scenes that's much larger than that. And so Paul says, hey, it's not just a physical battle. Uh, it's not just that we can attack it from the physical side of things. There's a spiritual battle that is raging that we have to be aware of too. 
Um, think about what we read about and studied in Revelation, particularly chapter 12. If you want to go back and read that this week, Revelation chapter 12 talks about Satan as the dragon being cast out of heaven to this earth. And it talks about him being angry about that and how he works against God's people and he seeks to destroy the church any ways that he can, right? So all through Revelation, we saw that there's this cosmic war taking place, right? The, 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 the assurance to us that's given is that the war has already been won, that there is no doubt as to where the victory will come. But that war rages as Satan during this period of time, and, and Revelation 12 even highlights the fact he knows that his time is short, that there is a set ending time to what Satan is permitted to do here on this earth. But while he's permitted, that, that war rages. Uh, it rages physically, but it's certainly far more a spiritual battle that we see. Um, the world, though, is under the limited guidance of Satan. We've seen this already in chapter 2. Ultimately, we know and understand that the events of this world are controlled by God. But as we see in, in the book of Job, uh, that there is uh, a permissiveness where God allows Satan to carry out certain things for God's bigger purposes. And so the world is under the limited guidance of Satan. Satan is allowed to impact it. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, some of the ways that Satan works. In verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what Paul prays against. He prays that we would not be blinded to these things. He prays that we would be enlightened, that our eyes would be opened to these things. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, we're seeing how Satan is able to work and move, and yet how he has to still be submitted to the ways of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 3, this is the section that talks about the man of lawlessness, what we might would commonly call the Antichrist and the end times and how some of these things unfold. It says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day when Christ comes will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, uh, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance, by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You read that passage, and you know this is one of the first sections that we went through back when we began our church. And you read that, and if you're not careful, you get so caught up in the Antichrist picture there. You get so caught up in the deception and the power and the signs and the wonders. And if you're not careful, it creates fear in your heart that, oh my goodness, like 
This time is coming, and I don't want to be here for that when this great deception comes and the, the evil that is working. And, and yet, if you look a little bit closer at this passage, all of that evil is in submission to God, right? Paul talks about the fact that this evil can't even come until God says that it can, right? It's being restrained. It's being withheld. It can't even do what it really wants to do until God says, now's the time. Now's the time when you can do it. And then you read a little bit further and it's like, oh, there's this great deception and people are falling prey to the, the untruths of the Antichrist. And you read a little further in depth to it and it says, it's all people who were unsaved to begin with, right? It's not believers that are losing their salvation. It's not saints who are walking away and abandoning the faith for this, this Antichrist who confuses them. No, it says it's, it's all people who were unsaved to begin with. Like it really has no real power because all it does is further confound those who have already rejected the truth, right? And then there's also this guarantee that the greatest evil plan of Satan that he wants to do today, but he can't do today until God says that he can do it. The greatest plan of evil, the greatest uh, uh, end battle for him, where he brings all of his evil plans to the very end, says that Jesus will just stop it with his breath. I mean, it's like the easiest battle of all time. All of Satan's efforts culminating in this great battle, and Jesus says, it's over. It's done. It's finished. It couldn't start until I said so, and it ends when I'm done with it too, right? So there's no real power here, and yet God gives Satan the ability to sway this world for his bigger purposes. We need to be aware of this. We need to be engaged in this fact that the battle that extends around us is beyond the physical and into the spiritual realm. And we need to keep in mind, too, who our enemy is. His evil character is reflected in his evil purposes. John 8, 44 talks about uh, Satan being one who um, is full of lies and full of murders. John 10, 10 talks about how he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Right? Satan is full of death and lies. He doesn't bring hope or life to us, even though he promises such. Uh, He works these purposes within the, the bigger powers and systems that are at his disposal. I was listening to a sermon yesterday that um, Red Oak Church at Snowbird did on this. It was about six years ago, and Rob Conti was preaching on it, and he was talking about uh, conspiracy theories and, and all this thought process about um, different organizations and groups out there that are really controlling everything that, that we see and feel in the media and in our government. Um, and all that's very possible because it would fall right in line with what's happening here that what we see on the outside, the exterior, is probably not all that's going on behind the scenes because really, ultimately, Satan is working behind the scenes. He's using everything that's at his disposal to try to guide this world against God, right? And so he's using the messages that come through the media to pervert and distort the ways of thinking both for us and our children. I mean, I was heartbroken this week um, technology is, is a great thing and it's a dangerous thing. Um, it was a positive thing this week because uh, our, our security system alerted us to something that one of our middle school girls was writing about, right? And it was thoughts and, and whatnot that were, that were not normal, were not common. They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be present there. This is, this is a result of being exposed to something evil, Right? 
And it's now, it's now led her into deeper darkness. And, and thankfully, we were able to find this and see this and meet with the parents, and we're working towards a, a way of restoration for this situation. But I was heartbroken in thinking that this individual has been exposed to something where a way of thinking is so contrary to the way that she's created. Right? So contrary to this. And this is, this is how Satan works and moves. And, and we began to talk with the parents and we began to speculate, hey, maybe this has contributed to this. Maybe this has contributed to this. Things that should be innocent that have led to a way of darkness and evil. And that's how Satan works. That's how Satan works. He appeals to us. He appeals to our flesh. We go wandering in that direction. And then he seizes control and he begins to taint our way of thinking. We begin to doubt God's goodness. We begin to doubt God's control, which is his two ultimate ways of lying to us, right? That God is not good and that God is not in control. That's the battle that's raging around us. It's a battle for our minds. Number two, we are engaged in a battle that requires supernatural support, okay? Not only is there a battle going on around us that's bigger than just the physical, we need to see the fact that spiritual warfare is real, that Satan and demonic forces are real, not to scare us, not to make us panic, not to create fear inside of us, but to create an appropriate alertness, right? An alertness that this is serious and I need to take serious measures to stand firm against it. We're engaged in a battle that requires supernatural support. Look at the way Satan works. It says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I put in my notes, Satan utilizes schemes primarily rather than brute force. His desire is to turn our hearts and minds away from God, right? It's not just that Satan comes in to kill, steal, and to destroy, or to murder with brute force alone. He comes initially with a desire to, to deceive us, to trick us. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 11, look what it says. It says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? Verse 11, so that, you would, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The implication here is that Satan works in such a way where it's a mental game far more than it is a physical game. Right? The battle is best seen uh, not in the physical attacks, but the mental attacks that come our way. It's a battle for truth. It's a battle for belief in that truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The idea here is that, that we have to take our thoughts captive because that's where the war really rages. Satan wants us to doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of God. These are the two ideas that give us the most compelling reasons to serve God. Think about that for a second. I've preached this for many years, uh, the idea that Satan's lies in the Garden of Eden are attached to those two concepts, that he wants us to doubt the goodness of God, and he wants us to doubt the control of God, right? When he comes to Eve and begins to seize her mind, he calls into question whether God has her goodness in mind at all, right? God has put you here, he has created things, and he has withheld good things from you. 
It's the exact opposite of everything that we see in Scripture. God doesn't withhold good things from his children. He gives good things to his children. He works in all purposes for the good of his children. Satan comes in and says, really though? Really though? Then he calls into question whether God can really carry through with the discipline and punishment that he shares with Eve and Adam about if they disobey him. Will God really kill you? Like, is death really the result of your disobedience? Can God really do that? Does he really have that kind of control, right? And so we're constantly being pressured to question, do we think God's good and do we think God is in control? These are reasons why people leave the faith. We've talked about this before, right? People walk away from the faith when they stop believing in God's goodness and God's control, right? One of those things, maybe you still believe that God's in control, but if he's not good, then I don't wanna follow him. Or maybe he's in control, but he's not good. I don't want to follow that either. I mean, these are the two most compelling reasons for why we would willfully submit ourselves to this type of God. A God who's in control of everything and he controls it for our good. Who doesn't want to follow after that, right? Who wouldn't want to go to the ends of the world for that type of God? If you're telling me, I control everything, I can protect you from anything, and I only work good for you. Even if you don't see the good initially, it always works good for you. That's the type of God that we want to follow. That's the type of God that Satan attacks, right? For us to not follow that type of God, he has to call into question whether he's good, whether he's in control. Satan wants us to, or he tempts us to doubt God's word. He stirs up doubts in our minds about the clarity of it, right? He did this in the garden. He does this in the desert. When he quotes scripture or quotes things that God says, but he distorts it. Right? He changes it. He tweaks it. He wants to confuse us about whether God's word is really clear about an issue. He wants us to be uh, confused and to doubt the truth of God's word and the goodness of it. He also tempts us to doubt God's plan. He stirs up divisions within the church, causing us to doubt the effectiveness of the gospel. Man, he rips the church apart with division. That's why Paul has spent so much time talking about our unity and the desire to love each other and serve each other and submit to one another. Why? Because divisions in the church, man, they they work against the gospel because it, it shows that, or it seemingly shows that the gospel isn't effective in changing people's hearts and minds, right? If we're at odds with each other, if we're fighting against each other, that's what you find in the lost world. Right, so Satan comes in and he says, let's doubt God's word. Let's doubt God's plan. This is the battle that rages for our minds. We need God's power seen through the work of the spirit to withstand these type of attacks. That's why Paul has spent so much time in Ephesians talking, teaching, and praying for our hearts and our minds. Right back in Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of Lord Jesus Christ, the, God, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of of his great might. Paul says, I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. I want you to know this. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's been praying this all through this, this book, right? I'm praying that your hearts will be enlightened. I'm praying that you'll understand these things. I'm praying that your minds will be protected, that you'll know the love of God. You'll know his goodness, right? That you'll be protected from all these temptations out there that would challenge you to see God as good and God is in control. We need his enlightenment and his strength to enable us to not crumble at the temptations of Satan. We need his enlightenment to see the word and his strength to believe the word so that we don't fall prey to these temptations. Number two, be prepared with his armor. Be prepared with his armor. Paul says, see that we are in a battle, a battle that's not physical only, but spiritual. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. We're going to have to rely upon the Lord's strength to help us understand the victory that we have in this. And then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand it in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. These are these battle elements, these pieces of armor that we're told to to take on to help us in this battle. We need armor that protects us defensively. The belt of truth is mentioned here. Truth has always been a crucial descriptor of what it means to be a believer. We've already seen this concept of truth throughout the book of Ephesians. This belt of truth kind of holds everything together. It's uh, that we need, we need to be named amongst those who value and speak truth. We saw this back in Ephesians 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The belt of truth, it's a descriptor of what it means to be a believer, to value truth to hold to truth, but also to be known for truth as well. The breastplate of righteousness conveys the idea that our hearts have to be protected, right? The breastplate would protect chest, particularly that heart area. Our hearts have to be protected. How do we protect our hearts? Well, it starts with us resting in the righteousness that's already been given to us and reflecting that righteousness in our lives as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 we're not going to read these, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, Philippians 3.7-9. Both of these passages talk about how the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. That's important because it protects us from ever thinking that we have to work our way to heaven. We have to earn God's favor with our performance. We don't. Christ has done that for us. We've already been given the righteousness of Christ. So take that off the list of to-dos, trying to earn God's favor. Christ already did that for us. So, so we have the righteousness that we need to be found favorable in the eyes of God, but now we're called to live righteously as well, right? To, to put away any hint of sexual immorality in our life, right? To go nowhere near those things, to stay clear of those things, to not be partakers of darkness, not to be partakers and partners with those who live in these ways, right? We're to, we're to have a breastplate of righteousness where we are known for righteousness, the righteousness that's already been given to us, we start to live that out in our life. 
Gospel shoes are then highlighted next. These gospel shoes that some commentators would say would resemble like cleats for an athlete today. These, these shoes that would have had ways to ground yourself in the ground so that as, as the ground became unstable, maybe muddy uh, uh, underneath you, you would still be able to stand firm in the midst of that unstable condition, right? And so we're to put on these shoes of peace that are mentioned here. And I think, too, there's a twofold aspect of understanding that peace. One, we must enjoy his peace that's offered to us. Remember back in John when uh, Jesus shows himself to the disciples shortly after his resurrection? He comes talking about the peace that he offers, the peace that he extends to them that they can enjoy. But we also have a responsibility to extend that same peace to others. We're to be at peace with other people. We're to preach peace that is available to the gospel. And then we're to pursue peace with each other too in the ways that we reconcile with one another. James chapter four, verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, right? This, this whole strife issue that exists here. He talks about us moving away from that, trusting in God's provision, humbling ourselves, repenting of these things, drawing near to God, he will draw near to you, humbling ourselves before the Lord, not speaking against one another. Why? The idea being in verse seven, if we submit ourselves therefore to God, we resist the devil and he will flee from you. Part of the ways that we, we, uh, we claim our ground of victory in this battle and we resist Satan is, is we, we live in the peace that we enjoy peace with God and peace with others. And Paul's been preaching that peace to us all through this book, that we have to see that we are at peace with one another. Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled together as one people of God. All the more us as Christians who are, who are far more alike, even in our differences, we are far more alike uh, than the Jews and Gentiles would have been. And we have to enjoy unity together to resist the devil. The shield of faith is mentioned we believe the word by put, to put the shield up. How do we use the shield? We, we know the word of God. We believe the word of God. Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Well, how do we take refuge in him? Is that we believe his ways are perfect. We believe he's in control and that he is good. The word of the Lord proves true. We take refuge in him. By doing so, he becomes a shield to us with all the temptations that come from Satan to doubt those things. Right belief in the truths of God's word allows us to overcome the world. First John chapter five. First John chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Right, this is how we use the shield of faith. We believe the word of God. We believe in his goodness. We believe in his control. It guards us and protects us from the schemes of the devil. We need to believe Jeremiah 29, 11, that he has good intent for his people. Believe Romans 8, 28, that he works good for his children when temptations and trials come our way, but also when good times come, because look what it says. Notice what it says here in Ephesians. We don't just need the shield of faith in the difficult times, in the bad times. We need them also in the good times. 
Because it says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Why? Because when God's given us good and, and, and things are happening that are good, what are we prone to do? We're prone to forget about God. We're prone to get prideful in our own life as well, right? So we need the shield of faith too to believe rightly in times when, when things are going good. In all circumstances, we need the shield of faith. Then the helmet of salvation. We need to rest firmly in the hope of our salvation. It allows me to endure anything that Satan throws at me. We don't want to let Satan in our head. We need to know our salvation and all that comes with it, all those spiritual blessings that have been highlighted for us in the book of Ephesians, to know those intimately as a means of protecting ourselves when things are difficult. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We need to know our salvation. It's a, it's a helmet for us. And then number two, we need, to arm, uh, we need the armor that equips us off offensively as well, the sword of the Spirit. Not only is the word to be used defensively in opposition to the lies of Satan, but it's also to be used offensively to advance his kingdom. We can't live the life that we're called to without living in the word. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 talks about the need to meditate upon God's word, to be seeking counsel from his word and not from the things of this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How do we overcome the evil one? By putting God's word into us, by using it both defensively and offensively. Our focus must always be on pointing people to Jesus with our words that flow from his. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, 1 Peter 3, 15 talks about us always being ready to, to give an offense for the hope that's in us, having our speech seasoned with salt so that we can point others to him. We speak gospel truths to ourselves and to others in response to the temptations, the doubts, and the divisions that Satan throws our way. And then as we wrap up this section... Not only do we put this armor on, we're to pray for the effectiveness of it. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So our last point today is to be prayerful in all the alls. There's four alls here in regards to praying. And we need to be prayerful in all of them. Notice where, where these alls fall. Praying at all times with all prayer, with all perseverance, and for all the saints. For all's here. Number one, we need to be praying at all times. We need to be in a continual state of prayer that keeps us mindful of our need for him. We need to be praying in all ways. Not just for specific requests that we have, but we need to be in an attitude of prayer where we are praying for worship, for thanksgiving, and for those supplications that are needed. We pray at all times. We pray in all ways. Number three, we need to be praying for all time, right? We don't have seasons where we need to be praying. We need to persevere in our prayers. It says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, right? The, the days are evil and the war is real. We need to be praying until Jesus comes back. We need to remain alert and persistent in our need to pray. And then lastly, number four, we need to be praying for all the saints, we need to be praying for all the saints. We need each other being mindful of each other. We can't, we can't hold our ground of victory without relying upon each other. 
Paul says, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. For each other, we need to be praying for the ability to advance the gospel in boldness, right? That the gospel would advance in our life, that we would be enlightened and come to deeper understanding of all the things that we've talked about in Ephesians, but that we would also be bold to proclaim those things to others, that we would advance the kingdom as Paul calls us to here. He wants to to be boldly proclaiming the gospel. We too need to be boldly proclaiming the gospel. The encouragement to us is that even though this war is real, the battle is real, God goes with us and God gives us the victory. Romans 8, 31 through 39 talks about that nothing can really be against us when God is for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We'll close with this. You can also uh, write down Joshua 1, 6 through 9. There's another great passage to read about the victory that comes from God. But let's close with John, or 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's so much assurance there in that passage, right? Because we are from God, even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we don't have to fear that. We don't have to fear that darkness because we know that the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding to to find victory in that battle where Satan is trying to trick us, trying to deceive us, trying to outwit us, trying to make us doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of God. We know him who is true. We are in him who is true who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God. He offers eternal life. Let's stay away from the idols. Let's keep ourselves free from that darkness. The identity truth to remember today, number one, every Christian has access to the power and the provisions needed to stand firm in their faith in the face of opposition from Satan's forces. Every Christian has access to both the power and the provisions. We have access to the power of God, and he's given us the armor of God needed to stand firm in our faith in the, faith, in the face of opposition from Satan's forces. The application question that I leave you with today is the difficulty of carrying out the obedience we are called to driving you to do all that you can to stand firm? Is the difficulty... Right? We, we've studied the book of Ephesians together now. We've been called to live a certain way. We've been called to live a certain way towards each other. And lest we think that that would be easy, Paul tells us there's a battle raging to keep us from doing these things. Right? The context here is that Satan is working to keep us from understanding our identity as believers and living in unity with each other. And so we should, tr- we, should, we should assume that he is going to work to disunify us here in this church. He's going to work to confuse us about our identity. And we need to put the armor of God on to protect ourselves from that. We need to pray for each other in the midst of that. It's going to be difficult to be obedient to these things. Have we done all that we can to stand firm? It says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. 
and having done all to stand firm. You look at your life, when you look at your call to be obedient to what we've learned in the book of Ephesians, are you doing all that you can to stand firm? Does your life and what you are doing match the urgency? Does it match the urgency that Paul's conveying here? That it's not just about the physical things that we'll encounter this week. We have to understand there's a, there's a spiritual piece that's happening. As we approach this next week, there is a spiritual piece where Satan wants nothing more than to disunify and to confuse us. And he'll throw temptations, he'll throw trials, he'll throw difficulties, he'll throw divisions at us in hopes of turning our attention away from the goodness and the sovereignty of God. It's a real battle. And there should be an urgency about us to stand firm in the midst of that battle. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are in control and that you remain good. Even when our circumstances don't always feel that way. God, help us to be reminded that we can always trust you, that you are the true God. And that even though this world lies under the sway of the evil one, we don't look around confused like we don't, we don't know what's happening because we know what's happening. You've told us what's happening. We are working toward an end day where all of this evil will be done with. And you'll make all things right. And you've already assured us of that through the victory of the cross and the resurrection. And so we operate from a position of victory today. And God, I pray that we would see that. But God, also help us to see that we are in the midst of a battle that rages for our minds. Not just ours, but for every individual in this church. And not just for the adults, but for the kids as well. And if we're, to, if we're to experience the victory given to us, then we have to wage war against this. We have to put the armor that you have given to us on effectively. So God, I pray that you'd give us an urgency to, to carry out these orders in the letter of Ephesians obediently, but to do so realizing it's not going to always be easy. There's going to be a difficult level to it. And so God, I pray that it would drive us to pray to pray for your power, to pray for your understanding, to pray for the supernatural ability to see your goodness and to see your sovereignty in the midst of difficult situations, in the midst of wonderful situations where we'd be tempted to, to lose sight of you in the midst of those things as well. God, help us to see that Satan is throwing fiery darts at us and that for us to protect ourselves, we need to put the shield of faith up. We do so by being in your word, seeing your word and believing your word. God, I pray that you continue to grow us in our faith. God, help us not to lose sight of all that we've learned in the book of Ephesians, who we are in Christ and who we are in the body of Christ. God, I pray that you would continue to help us to live these things out. Give us the power to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.